Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. Hi, everybody. This is Ethan Nickturn. This is the Road Home Podcast. Uh, Today, I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about um, both finding a teacher, spiritually speaking, uh, meditation teacher, Dharma teacher, some form of spiritual guide, uh, and also want to talk about uh, becoming a teacher, because I think this is really relevant, uh, always relevant, but especially now. Um, A lot of people I know are kind of moving past an interest in meditation that is sort of just dipping one's toe in uh, or or maybe working with meditation apps uh, or, you know, having taken a few courses online or read a few books um, and really want more formal guidance and perhaps even a, a more formal relationship with a teacher and or community. Um, and, uh, also a lot of people are becoming meditation teachers, um, as sort of interest in this whole set of practices and area, um, explodes really. Um, there's more meditation teacher trainings, uh, which I think is great. Um, if you want to put me out of a job, um, well, I don't want to be out of a job, but, um, I I would love for more people to be doing this. And, um, you know, there's a great teacher training, uh, through the Dharma moon community. I know the interdependence project, uh, has a nice teacher training program. Uh, there's some other bigger teacher training programs. So I know hundreds of people who are taking just like becoming a yoga teacher, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I know many, many people who are starting to teach meditation, offer it, maybe even, uh, teach Buddhist philosophy and psychology, or just teaching in the spiritual space overall, in the wellness space. And I think it's really important for both groups of people, those of us who are seeking a teacher and also becoming teachers, to really think about that role. Uh, As you may know, there's been quite a lot of disappointment and uh, misconduct, etc., among teachers um, and uh, in different communities. Uh, with different sorts of hierarchies and different sorts of, um, you could say, boundary crossing or misunderstanding of the role of being a teacher. Uh, What I'm most saddened about for right now is that I think there's been less, there's been more discourse about uh, when being a teacher is done badly and less uh, discourse about how we actually empower a real model of um, awareness, of mutual consent, of an understanding of roles, uh, of an understanding of everyone's humanity that actually could serve as uh, the building blocks for creating a good system of people guiding others, finding the guidance they need. Um, And one of the things I notice that I want to address in this podcast is it almost seems like nobody uh, 
when they're talking about the spiritual space, uh, you know, unlike the Western psychological space, where if you have, say, a therapist, uh, there's a lot more clarity of what that role means, what the boundaries of that role are, et cetera. Sometimes I think in the Western psychological space, there's almost an over rigidity of roles. Um, but at least there's a clarity that everybody that everybody can understand and participate in from a mutually consensual and informed um, perspective. So I think that's part of this is to really understand the different ways that the term teacher is used that sometimes get mushed together, which shouldn't be. And also to create a model where people really have the guidance that they long for and need, uh, understand um, how to work with um, things like projection, transference, counter-transference, expectations, disappointments, etc. Um, and also understand how to step into that role and still uh, be a person, you know, be, be a full person, be a complete person. And, you know, I think that's been part of my experience being different forms of a teacher over the last 20 years um, is it's hard. It's really hard being a teacher of anything that's considered, quote, spiritual uh, or psychological uh, and still to be a person uh, because there's a lot of expectations and a lot of different expectations uh, on what that role is supposed to mean. Right. And sometimes people don't actually share their expectations uh, of what you're supposed to be doing, et cetera. And sometimes it's only when you disappoint uh, expectations that um, you find out that the person had very different or a group of people had very different expectations of you. Right. I get this um, in little ways, you know, when I get political on social media, you know, that the expectation uh, is that a teacher is supposed to be neutral, you know, uh, and I, I don't know where that expectation came from, but it's not one I ever agreed to. It's not one that I think is in any of the teachings, right? So, so what are the actual valid expectations of a teacher and ca how can we empower everybody, right, with some kind of mutual consent so that these conversations are much, much more transparent and there's clarity of the roles, um, the first thing I want to say about finding a teacher or being a teacher is that any of the definitions of teacher, uh, that we look into, and I think this is actually the most important piece of this puzzle. When we say that somebody is a teacher, right? Uh, when we say that somebody is instructing us, when we say that somebody is a teacher, we look up to, uh, when we say that somebody is a guru, which is a very specific designation of teacher in the traditions that I've uh, come from. So when we're using these terms, we're talking about a role, right? So nobody is a teacher all the time, right? That's not an identity. Nobody is an instructor all the time. Uh, nobody is a guru all the time. And I think especially with with those models, uh, you know, one of the things systemically where the teacher model goes wrong is when it's viewed as an identity rather than a role, right? So in some of the tantric Buddhist circles, like in the Shambhala community, um, one of the main things that I think went wrong was that 
there was this notion of the person in charge being the guru, right? And that person uh, didn't have any relationships in his life where he wasn't everybody's guru, right? So it disallowed him from viewing his work as a role that he sometimes took on in certain relationships, and it became an identity. Uh, so if we're teaching, it's a role that arises in relationship to students, right? And I think that's really important. We have other roles. And I think that's really key if we're looking for teachers or if we are becoming teachers. Um, look for people where teaching is not their identity, it's their role, where they're actually a person, you know, and they're unafraid to be a person and they're clear about the different roles that they might uh, take on in their life. Uh, you know, somebody who I've had on the uh, podcast uh, is um, Lamarad Owens. Uh, and I think Lamarad is a really great example of really fully holding a lineage of these spiritual traditions, in, in his case, tantric Buddhism, uh, and still being a person, right? Viewing being a Lama, which he, he literally is a Lama, um, uh, as his role as a teacher in the world, but he's still a person named Rod who has an identity. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think he's really able to kind of confront and deconstruct uh, people's expectations that the teacher or Lama role uh, means that you show up fulfilling everybody's expectations about what that is supposed to look like. <laughs> you know, there's always a fear here of saying like somebody is a, a great example of being a teacher with really good boundaries and understanding of how to be in certain roles. Because uh, then you find out like they did something wrong, you know, like, uh, um, oh, gosh, Lama Rod, like killed a panda bear or something like that. Now, Lama Rod Owens did not kill a panda bear, to my knowledge. But I do think it's a good model uh, for how to be you know, um, to be really clear about um, the role that you're trying to be in. Uh, when Lama Rod was on this podcast, he said, I've stopped trying to be good, which was a kind of um, sort of forceful way of, of making the point that I thought he was making, which is I'm not trying to fulfill everyone's projections and expectations of what a Buddhist Lama or teacher um, is supposed to be doing. Right. I'm actually trying to practice awareness and compassion and be in the roles that I'm in, in the specific relationships that I'm in. And so I think this clarity of roles rather than taking on an identity is really crucial because um, otherwise uh, being a student and finding a teacher is going to be full of uh, projection, expectation and disappointment. And on the other side, being a teacher is going to uh, remove the opportunity for us to be authentic, transparent, and just be ourselves, which is really what I think the path of awakening is all about, is becoming more and more who we really are, which is people, right? And if you're an awakened person, sure, you, you may have something to teach others if they seek your guidance, but an awakened person is a person. And that's the point is that we're becoming, we're using these practices, meditation, philosophy, study of the mind, 
uh, practicing ethics to the best of our ability, we're using that to become more and more authentic, awake, and compassionate humans. So a few things I would say to look out for in any of the four definitions of, of teacher that I'm about to give, and I think it's important to have different, to really be clear about what we're talking about, um, is I think the first step before we go looking for a teacher is to be really clear about what we're looking for as students, right? So am I looking for just somebody to get inspired by, like by reading, you know, what they've written or by maybe listening to their podcasts or online lectures um, and having that sort of inspired but distanced relationship to a teacher? Am I just looking for somebody to inspire my practice, you know, with a few quotes on Instagram or guided meditations online? Is that the kind of support I need? Or do I feel like I need some more ongoing instruction uh, and to maybe be part of a community in receiving instruction and doing practices that's maybe guided by one or hopefully several teachers? Or do I want more of an actual relationship with the teacher? Do I actually want to formally enter some sort of relationship, right? So I think that's the first thing is kind of understanding what we're looking for and being clear about that. And then I think if and when we start to go look for someone, uh, a few things I would say to look for is, first of all, look for the environment uh, of kind of energetic hierarchies that exist around a given teacher. Um, does it feel like it's a worshipful environment, right? Does it feel like a place where people kind of go to project uh, onto the teacher, um, sort of that they are exalted or more heroic than anyone else? Um, and then I think as we're looking at the teacher, um, one thing to look at is, does this person have a life outside of teaching, right? Is this the only kind of relationship they're engaging in, um, is being the teacher rather than being in specific relationships with people as, um, uh, a teacher, right? As that person's teacher, um, and then in term, further in terms of looking at the teacher, does this person feel uh, transparent? Do they talk about their own experience? And I think that's really important because, you know, in any kind of spiritual or psychological uh, arena, you don't want to be guided by somebody who's uh, making everything about them. But you also don't want to be guided by somebody who's completely opaque uh, about their own experience, their own struggles, uh, their own um, insights, their own life situations, who's not sharing uh, anything about their own path, right? You want to be with somebody who has a kind of a kind of authenticity towards the way that they are pursuing the path, I think, in my humble opinion. And I think also, you know, we want to feel that, um, and this is the tricky part uh, I think about right now is, I mean, and this is just my take on it. You want to feel that somebody might be a little bit further along a path than you, which, again, never means better, uh, never means um, of a different you know, breed of exalted humanity than you are, uh, but may actually have 
developed some insight through their practices that that can be shared, right? And then I think it's a question of what sort of relationship am I in? And this is where I think it's important to look at from both sides, both as the um, student and as for those of us who are becoming teachers, because this is where I'd like to say that there's, uh, you know, these categories are constructs, but there's three or four different ways of looking at a teacher. In my book, The Road Home, I talked about three, but I'd like to add a fourth. Um, and so that we're clear about what we actually mean when we say that somebody is a t- uh, my teacher, you know, or I'm working with somebody as a student, we're clear about what the boundaries and expectations of that relationship are. And there's an attitude of consent, right? And it's only, this is the thing I think, uh, I, I think a lot about protecting, protecting the safety and um, experience of students. But I also think a lot about protecting the well-being of teachers, right? Because part of being a teacher or any kind of mental health worker or spiritual person is you're asked to take certain things on, right? And you have to be clear about what you're taking on and what you're not taking on. And I think mutual clarity is the way to empowerment, that both sides have a clear sense of here's what the roles and duties are. Here's how to know we're in a relationship. Um, And uh, then we can proceed from there. Right. And whatever projections or transferences or countertransferences come up in that space, they can be met within an understanding of the roles and duties so that there's not some uh, confusion or resentment on either side of expectations, either from the teacher that the student owed more than they were giving or from the student that the teacher was supposed to be doing something differently, right? That on all sides, there's a sense of empowerment of the relationship with the student's well-being primarily in mind, but also with the teacher's um, a kind of clarity about what the teacher is supposed to be taking on and can take on. And so that's why I think we need to arrive at this standard that I've used before um, uh, that I, for me is a really important standard, um, which is uh, if somebody doesn't know they're your teacher, then they're not your teacher. And I think that's a really good model because a lot of times <clears throat> people are, you know, when things go wrong, and I want to be really clear that when there are situations of um, abuse, when there are situations of assault, when there are situations where consent is not given and the person in power, say the person with spiritual authority here, um, manipulates uh, the student's experience and they're in an actual relationship, um, I feel very clear that the the onus, you know, lies with the teacher. But a lot of times, and, you know, this has happened to me, too, that um, people I was not, I was friends with, um, uh, you know, this hasn't happened to me many times, but people I was friends with after something went wrong in the friendship, um, they um, would say, you know, would would bring to mind my teacher role uh, as a way to say I should have acted differently in our friendship. And um, I'm like, you know, my response is I 
if I messed up, I messed up, but I wasn't your teacher. I was your friend, right? And this is the tricky part about being a teacher is sometimes you do get held to account for for the roles of a um for the role of being a teacher uh by people who are not your student you know this happens online all the time oh that's a nice comment for a teacher i thought you were a teacher it's like no in this situation i'm a person and i'm trying to be a decent uh buddhist person but i don't owe you what a teacher uh would owe you because i'm not your teacher um and i feel very strongly about that you know and so when friendships go awry and if you are on the path of becoming a teacher, I guarantee you that there will be some experience where you're either in a friendship or you're in a business dealing or you're in a romantic relationship where after there's a disappointment of expectations, um, the somebody will try to use the fact that you are a meditation teacher or a yoga teacher or a Buddhist teacher uh, uh, as, as kind of fodder uh, against you, um, when they feel like their expectations of that relationship are disappointed. Um, and obviously, obviously, um, from the student's perspective, right. To be in that space where, uh, you come to somebody seeking, um, wisdom, seeking kindness and compassion and there's some kind of manip manipulation of that. Um, uh, it's so painful and so problematic because it breaks trust, you know. And um, it's not that that trust can't ever be repaired. And I know that in uh, some situations in my life, without meaning to, um, I've disappointed expectations. And sometimes that happens very naturally because... The human mind projects sometimes, but um, when that's happened, I've tried to my best and I want to keep trying to my best to actually take responsibility for um, the mistakes that I've made, but also to be clear about um, what the relationship actually was and what the projection and disappointment actually was. Uh, it's really important to be clear on all sides. Again, that's, I can't, um, I can't state that enough. So it's really important for teachers to say, what kind of relationship am I in here? And it's really important for students to say, um, what am I looking for? And what, what are the responsibilities and duties? What's being asked of me as a student? What's being asked of the teacher? And to not project uh, more than that on either side. And again, the more we empower the clarity and transparency of the relationship, uh, I think the less harm will be caused. So uh, I want to get into these four different ways that you could look at a teacher. The first, which is I think where a lot of us are at, is what I would just call the teacher as inspiration. And the thing about the teacher as inspiration is it means that we don't have any personal relationship with the teacher. You read someone's books. Right. Um, you you um, listen to their talks. Right. You listen to their guided meditations on an app and you just feel a connection to them. 
right? You feel some kind of authenticity. They unlock something that inspires you to feel like maybe I could go on a path too, right? Maybe I could work on myself and I could um, transform my experience of being human. I could deepen something. I could open. I could open to my experience. You know, many people read, uh, for example, like Pema Chodron or the recently departed Thich Nhat Hanh in difficult times. Uh, I've had people say to me, you know, I've read your book and it was really inspiring and really um, helped me be on or, you know, recapture a path. And and that's a, a way to relate to somebody. What I would say about the inspiration is because it's not an actual relationship that's been entered into, I would not use the word teacher to describe this relationship. Uh, I would reserve teacher for an actual established relationship. Um, you know, sometimes people do say, well, Thich Nhat Hanh is my teacher. And I say, well, have you ever like actually directly been in a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh or, you know, received instruction uh, or have you ever met the person? And they say, no. I say, well, well, he's a great master for sure, but I wouldn't say that he's your teacher. I would say that um, he's your inspiration for the path. He He's a, a distant guiding light, right? Um, which I think is great. But um, what are the ethical sort of constraints of that? Um, obviously, you hope that that person is... Um, being decent on their path, right? Obviously, you hope for that. But there's also this need for awareness on the part of the student that the quest for some sort of pure and perfect inspiration, right? Somebody who never makes mistakes, never disappoints anyone, that that is a uh, projection, right? And that's a... Um, an expectation that's doomed to fail. Um, and I've seen this uh, in in the various uh, spaces um, where teachers have caused harm or hierarchies, systemic hierarchies have caused harm, that interestingly enough, it's often um, the people who projected the most kind of positive or pure qualities onto the teacher, they're the ones who are uh, the harshest in their critique, um, even more so sometimes than the people who are directly harmed by misconduct or misbehavior. So at the point of inspiration, as students, we need to know that if we're looking to be inspired by somebody, that there's going to be a projective quality in that that does set us up for disappointment. And I hope your disappointment with the teachers who inspire you is relatively minor. Like, uh, you know, God, I liked Ethan Nickturn until I found out what a dumb sense of humor he had or met, you know, a few people who are angry at him. Uh, and by the way, there are uh, a few people uh, uh, who are angry at me like anyone else. I hope that's the level of disappointment that you have. I hope it's not more painful disappointments of finding out that some of your inspirations um, uh, have caused real harm. And also, I think what's the most disappointing is that when uh, harm comes to light, 
there's not a meeting, a, a full-on, open-hearted, transparent, accountable meeting of that, right? The response becomes very defensive, et cetera. Um, but prepare for disappointment. With inspiration comes disappointment, but hopefully the disappointment will be small and human and repairable. Um, and uh, with any teacher we look to just for inspiration, that's the truth, right? So that's the first uh, type of teacher, somebody who inspires us but, and we receive sort of a distant light uh, from their insights or from their work. We're not in direct relationship with them of any kind, um, but they give us a little bit of pep to go on our journey, right? They give us some distant support, some unknown support. Uh, the second of the four ways of relating to a teacher is where we form some kind of relationship to a teacher, albeit a temporary one, um, but we actually receive some kind of direct guidance from a teacher in a community structure, in a group structure. And this is what I would call uh, the instructor, right? So I think a lot of times uh, when people say this person is my teacher, this is actually what they mean. So what are the functions of the instructor? That there's a usually a one-way relationship or mostly one-way relationship in that the student you know, maybe goes to a retreat or goes to a workshop or takes a class uh, with somebody. And in that scenario, the teacher is acting as instructor. So what are the kind of healthy ethical boundaries of an instructor? Um, I think one thing that's important is at this point, there is some kind of student-teacher relationship happening uh, at least for as long as the instruction lasts. You know, and the instruction can last very briefly. For example, if you're teaching a drop-in meditation class, uh, the instruction can be longer. For example, like one way I'm instructing right now is I teach a 40-week year-long Buddhist studies program each year. Um, you could go on a retreat with somebody. Uh, in certain communities, I know sometimes people say, oh, I sit with this person, which means you go on a group retreat with them, you know, occasionally or once a year maybe. Um, all of those are examples of being an instructor. So there's a group relationship with a teacher. It's mostly one way. So it's not receiving a ton of personal guidance uh, and it's temporary. And the ethical guidelines I always learned around this for both student and teacher are that there are boundaries of relationship uh, for as long as the instruction, the course, the workshop, the retreat lasts. And then the relationship dissolves, more or less, with one caveat, which is that um, the person who's the instructor should be aware and not against, but cautious about uh, entering into other forms of social relationship with a person that they've um, instructed in the past. Uh, it's worthy of a conversation. Like, for example, I'll give you an example. One of my three best friends in the world, uh, we met uh, because he used to come to a, a class I taught way back in the day um, in about 2004, the W era uh, in Williamsburg. 
uh, group of about 10 people, very casual. Uh, and, um, you know, he was very interested in Buddhism, a uh, little bit older than me. And, uh, you know, over the next bunch of years, our relationship evolved into uh, just being friends, you know, and uh, at which point I don't think it's uh, appropriate to say that I was his instructor. I don't think it's good to hold multiple roles uh, with somebody. I don't think, and sometimes where it's gone awry is somebody, uh, especially in some of the more classic patriarchal forms of Buddhism, Zen or Tibetan Buddhism, uh, somebody simultaneously is uh, being somebody's uh, teacher or instructor and their friend or their business partner uh, or their lover, you know, or romantic partner uh, or spouse. Uh, I think it's much healthier to just have one type of relationship at once. Um, but the inst- it, it is primarily on the instructor to say, um, you know, check in like, hey, you, you came to my retreat last year and, you know, now we're uh, hanging out for coffee. That's totally fine. But just just to be clear, this is a friend thing. Right. Or uh, in some cases, you know, and this has happened to me once or twice, too. Hey, we're going on a date now. You know, you you came to a lecture I gave, you know, at the Shambhala Center uh, you know, uh, is this cool, you know, and it's a check-in and it doesn't have to be, there's some people who feel that this should be a very rigid boundary. In other words, that if you've ever instructed somebody, uh, if they've ever been in a like drop-in class or, you know, a temporary, uh, instruction receiving environment that you should not have any form of social relationship with that person, uh, that doesn't feel flexible enough to accommodate um, uh, the real um, the real human situation. And good boundaries are really a, a lot about common sense and about an understanding of um, power dynamics. So it's good to know when we are seeking instruction from someone, when we're giving instruction to someone, and understanding that that is a student-teacher relationship, but that only formally lasts as long as the period of instruction lasts. And then if there's going to be a relationship afterwards, uh, it has to be done carefully. It has to be done, uh, you know, with a good check-in around what's going on. Uh, And it has to be done humanly and humanely. Um, So that's another way. And I think that's the way a lot of people think about teacher is actually this role of the instructor, somebody they sit with occasionally or maybe receive both uh, instruction from and inspiration from that first way of showing up as a teacher. Um, The third way of showing up as a teacher is where there's an actual ongoing student teacher relationship entered into. Um, And this is, this is really where I use the term teacher um, in this third way. Uh, I work with Uh, a number of students this way. We meet privately, usually once a month. Uh, And, um, you know, it's some, when I explain it to people who uh, aren't Buddhist or Buddhist or in the sort of spiritual wellness or psychotherapeutic or life coaching worlds, I say, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like life coaching. We talk about meditation practice. We talk about whatever Buddhist philosophy 
they're working with. Uh, we talk about their path in terms of whatever, you know, practice and study they're doing. And then we talk about life from a Buddhist perspective, ethics, relationships, etc. Um, you know, I think it has uh, some differences, uh, some clear differences with most Western psychotherapeutic models, although there's so much crossover now between um, things that came from Buddhism, like mindfulness, um, uh, like different ways of looking at the self, etc., uh, with Western psychotherapeutic methods, because those two, I think, having studied both, those two really need each other. Um, you know, it has some different features, which is this role, the teacher role, in has this longer name in Sanskrit, the Kalyana Mitra, which you hear most often translated as the spiritual friend, literally means something like noble friend. Um, so I like to think about this as mentor or teacher. But the idea here is this is the person you enter into a formal relationship with. You meet with them to talk about your path on a, you know, semi-regular to very regular basis. And um, there are boundaries. There's clear commitments. Um, uh, there's there's agreements, right, about the uh, entering and exiting the relationship. It's always a warning sign. If a teacher um, urges you not to exit the relationship. Um, so uh, for those of us who are teaching, we have to be really open when people say, I don't want to do this anymore and not put any pressure on them to continue uh, in some way. That I think is incredibly important that, um, you know, some of us are making a living teaching and I think that's better than fine. Uh, personally, I, uh, I don't want to say hate, but it um, it angers me when people think that teachers should not make decent livings. Um, but uh, people who handle cryptocurrency should somehow. That feels like we really have our um, economic and social priorities backwards. So I think it's good uh, to make a living as an experienced and skilled teacher who's working with others, especially when you're meeting uh, demands uh, and you're performing a really useful function and service in people's lives. Um, but we also have to be clear not to sell the relationship. And I think spirituality is guilty of this. Um, I think Western psychotherapy models are guilty of this. I think whenever a, a psychoanalyst says, I want you to see me three times a week or four times a week, that's always a little suspect to me. Um, that feels like a, a, a business model, uh, a little bit more than, um, a way to uh, actually make oneself of use uh, to the person, right? If you get somebody to see you four times a week, you you need to hustle to find less, fewer clients, right? So we do have to figure out a way to stay open to the fact that people may come and go as they need and as they please, and there's no psychological manipulation in that. But this role is really, it's a confidential role, uh, I always offer the students that I take on confidentiality when we meet more or less monthly. And there's um, there's also a sense of sharing the path. So that's what I say often at the first meeting with a student is, you know, unlike your therapist, um, if we ran run into each other in real life, I will never share anything that comes up about your practice, your path, your life in our sessions. But I will say a hearty hello to you. Right. I'm not going to pretend like I don't know you. Uh, 
And, um, and so there's this sense of uh, connecting uh, and having some real guidance and a real really ongoing relationship with somebody who knows your practice, uh, knows your life, and knows your wisdom and your struggles, um, applying these teachings to, you know, living a more interconnected, compassionate and awakened life. Uh, so I think a lot of us are looking for this level of teacher, the, the spiritual friend, the, the teacher, the mentor, the Kalyana Mitra, and it's hard to find. I do have to say in my work over the last 20 years in this area has really come about because it seems so clear that that's the, the infrastructurally, the missing piece. Uh, and it feels like, um, it's more and more the missing piece as more people are doing, uh, meditation practice and Buddhist and wellness practices unguided on apps uh, and so forth. That that idea of actually having a person to who personally knows your practice in life to connect with you and guide you on a regular basis. Um, it's almost like we built the um, interest in mindfulness uh, before we built the sort of guiding infrastructure um, and maybe that's the way all new fields, um, develop. But, uh, for those of us who are starting to teach, I would urge us to start thinking about moving in this direction. It, it, it has to be a very slow build because you have to get a lot of experience to really personally guide people. It's very different than leading a group meditation or giving a, a talk or a lecture, um, but it's, it's an important function for students. Uh, it really is. Um, so these are, I think for most of us, the, um, instructor, um, and, and the teacher, Kalyana Mitra are kind of really what we're looking for when we go past the, I just want to read somebody's books or receive inspiration, um, from somebody. And what I'll say about the boundaries of the Kalyana Mitra role is it does have stronger boundaries than the instructor role. Um, because you know somebody a certain way, you are both entering into a, a sort of relationship that has, I don't want to say a more committed quality, although it does have a more committed quality, but it creates a certain type of relationship that I think probably... Um, in almost every case that I can think of, removes the possibility of having a friendship, um, having other social relationships, certainly uh, from having romantic relationships. Um, so Kalyana Mitra, the, the teacher, the spiritual friend, uh, the, the guide is the next, the third of the four ways we can relate to a teacher. And the fourth is not going to be relevant to everybody. I'll say that. And I'm not I'm not sure how the fourth is going to continue, to be honest, in democratic, postmodern, uh, contemporary society. The fourth being the guru, uh, which in uh, Buddhism is a very specific designation. It's the most devoted relationship with the teacher. It's often not the teacher you know the best, right? I had a, a guru, um, uh, Sakyan Mipam. Uh, who I took certain vows of being, the, the term is not even being a student of someone, it's actually being their disciple, the guru-disciple relationship, which is actually functionally different from a student-teacher relationship. But there's even a vow commitment, which 
there's no vow commitment uh, to a teacher in any of the other ways of um, uh, thinking about a student-teacher relationship. But a guru, in the Buddhist uh, sense, there's a vow called samaya, or word of honor, that when you actually uh, take on a relationship with a guru, you take this vow that it's a lifelong binding commitment to really working with the nature of awareness, the nature of bodhicitta or awakened mind, and seeing that stream of awareness itself as coming through the lineage that the guru holds. So it's almost like this human person uh, becomes an unbreakable bond with a, a stream of teachings of the nature of mind. And so there's this sense of kind of binding or connecting someone to this stream of human uh, exemplars of awakened mind itself. And so the commitments of taking the Samaya vow, which is when somebody actually becomes your guru, right? So again, they're never the guru. That makes their identity uh, solid when it's, again, even the guru is a role. Right. Um, so when we take this Samaya vow, somebody becomes our guru and there's a much, much higher level of commitment uh, that is like getting married to a teacher. Um, I personally, you know, made this commitment uh, in 2001 to Sakyong Mipam. Um, and uh when uh, all of the, uh, you know, misconduct and uh, sexual misconduct and uh, sexual assault allegations uh, came forth in 2018, uh, and I stepped down from my role in the Shambhala organization um, pretty directly thereafter, uh, it took me longer uh, to think about and contemplate through what I was going to do with my commitment to um, Sakyang Mipam as guru because of this Samaya vow, because of it's like getting married to a teacher, even though I didn't know him very well personally. I would go on retreat with him once a year, but there was an environment of um, commitment, of devotion. And I'll say that I feel multiple ways about this environment. It really helped people feel connected to their practice. Um, that's the good thing. I really still believe that in terms of just uh, instruction, you know, uh, philosophical instruction, working with meditation, I and I think other people received quite a lot from him. Uh, I wasn't one of the people directly harmed in the community, Um you know, I had my own major disappointments and heartbreaks. I could say that it disrupted my life in many different ways. But also, I feel like in that situation, I was actually more uh, unwittingly, uh, and in some ways, I would say wittingly, uh, upholding uh, a devotional structure that was culty and problematic, while at the same time, simultaneously, um, being a really beloved and cherished community. And both are true. Um, but it took me a while because of this uh, guru-disciple relationship and the way that level of commitment is thought through um, to think about what I was going to do about it. It wasn't taken lightly. Um, 
same way I felt about uh, taking marriage vows, to be honest. Uh, it's sort of that same level. And I think uh, marriage vows are really the only in our Western secular society might be one of the only ways um, of that sort of level of commitment that's hard to break, not impossible to break, because many of us do it. Um, that sort of commitment that becomes a binding factor in one's life that you don't just, you know, you don't just break up with the person the first time you have an argument or a disagreement or a disappointment. And I think that's part of the potential power uh, of the devotional model is that you are intended to hold disappointments, even major ones, within the space of practice without running from them. Obviously, the problem is that it creates a power dynamic and a hierarchy uh, that is inherently open to manipulation, right? Because the guru has all the power the way it's classically construed. Um, it's not democratic. The community arrangements around it are not uh, democratic. Uh, and so there's rigid hierarchies that are based on devotion developed. And some people call these guru uh, communities cults, um, or I've come to think of the Shambhala organization as it existed uh, when the Sakyong was, Sakyong Mipam was in charge of it uh, as a, we were a partial cult. Um, and the way this ended for me was about, just to be clear, it was about nine months after um, uh, I stepped down from my role as senior teacher uh, for the New York Shambhala community, uh, I wrote Sakyong Mipam a letter, which I heard because I knew his assistance was uh, printed and, and placed in his hands. So I know he received it, um, where I asked, amongst other things, for um, the chance to talk to him about the commitment of our Samaya vow, the, that relationship that we had entered into uh, together and mutually. Um and uh, uh, I never got a response from this, which which actually s surprises some people. Um, he didn't really talk to a lot of people, uh, to be honest. And and definitely after the misconduct allegations came down, he he talked to hardly anyone that I know of. Um, but sometimes people say, even you? And, and I'm like, yeah, I didn't know him that well. That's not always what the guru um, situation is. You, you go on retreat with him once a year with 200 other people, and you receive great teachings to work with your own practice and mind. But um, it's not necessarily from a person that you would want to hang out with or in an um, environment that uh, is flexible enough to accommodate uh, different types of relationships, right? It's a kind of take it or leave it uh, environment that you enter around a classical guru structure. Um, and so when he um, uh, didn't respond to my letter, I felt sadness for sure. Um, but I also felt tremendous relief because that commitment that I had made uh his non-response felt like a dissolving of the commitment. I didn't have to make a choice about whether I was going to end the Samaya or not. He, he ended it for me, which as I look back, I still think it's quite sad. I think it's quite undirect. Uh, it makes uh, a lot of my aspiration uh, 
to try to be as direct as I can. And in the, the places where I haven't engaged in direct and loving communication with people, it redoubles my inspiration to try to do better. Um, and, um, but uh, also it felt right, you know, and I don't know um, what my relationship will be to the guru principle um, in the future, even as I do consider myself a student and a teacher in that tantric Buddhist tradition. Uh, I think there's many elements of the tradition that can survive uh, and be upheld as a real lineage without that sort of rigidity of a patriarchal um, devotional model of a kind of power dynamic that is so one-sided that it's uh, open to manipulation. So anyway, don't didn't mean to get super heavy because I do know people who have guru relationships uh, where the person serves partially as instructor, partially as inspiration, partially as this sort of energetic connection with the nature of awareness, where the person's a really um, great and decent human. Uh, they're probably very disappointing in other ways, but in the ways where they are actively causing, would cause major, major harm, they have good boundaries. And I think that's the important part, is to have decent human boundaries and to be transparent on all sides so that everybody um, uh, can feel empowered by a situation. I want to make one more point about finding a teacher being a teacher, which is the embodiment of the, and I mean by that, the embodied, the locational embodiment of the person or people you might follow as inspiration, as instructor, as a spiritual friend or mentor, or as guru. Um, which is to say, uh, that I do think embodiment matters. Uh, I think that doesn't necessarily mean, for, for example, um, let's say if you're uh, a, a cisgendered woman uh, and you say, I don't feel comfortable with male teachers, uh, I don't think you need to use your Dharma path to get more comfortable with male teachers. I think you can just say, I'm going to look for women teachers, you know, and that's that's okay. Um, I think if you're a queer person of person of color and you want to look for teachers uh, and communities where uh, those embodiments are in the teacher seat, I think that's great, you know. And I think as those of us who are teaching should encourage people to find not the teachers that make us feel totally comfortable all the time, because there's not a lot of learning when you're completely comfortable all the time. And sometimes I find that in this era where trust has been so lost because of these various systems of oppression uh, and the mistakes that those of us we uh, who have some level of power and authority make, uh, the confusions we have, um, you know, where there's a sense of like, I want to feel completely safe. Um, and sometimes I totally want people to feel safe. So I don't want you to take what I'm about to say out of context. But sometimes I find that when people are questing for total safety, what they're actually questing for is total comfort and total lack of challenge or disappointment. And that's not possible, right? It's really more that we want to be safe enough so that we can practice safe enough so that we can rise to those difficult experiences, those challenging experiences. 
And I think we should look for both teachers and communities where we feel that sense of these people are basically good. They have decent boundaries. Um, they're basically transparent. I know what I'm getting into. Uh, I know what's being asked of me. I'm not projecting too much onto the situation. I feel uh, that if if something doesn't feel right, I can just say, hey, this doesn't feel right. Uh, it won't be the kind of situation where I'll go along with something that makes me uncomfortable. And then, you know, several years down the road, I'll say, hey, that was that was not cool. Um, because that's happened a lot in this era. And while it has to, it ha that has to happen, that people are reassessing the past and saying, you know what, I went along with something, but it doesn't feel okay now. Um, that's not an ideal situation for empowerment. You know, as someone who's raising a daughter, um, I really want her to be in a, um, in a world where if something, uh, feels wrong she can claim her power take her seat and say this feels wrong on the spot and that happens the more powerful the the students know that they are um and you know it's interesting what's happening in academia right now because a lot of friends of mine are professors and you know this is one of the places that the right-wing talking point of uh cancel culture is kind of taking off right that there's this notion of like if students don't like um, what teachers are, um, saying, you know, or if a teacher says one insensitive thing, uh, they could get fired and it's a really kind of scary place to be a professor right now. And obviously I think we don't want to live in a punitive world where if you make a mistake, there's no way to repair or heal the mistake. I don't even think if teachers make mistakes, sometimes there's, you know, you say one thing and there are certain calls for people to step down or resign or, you know, be fired or stop teaching. Uh, it's not just because I like teaching and, and um, so forth. It's, it's, I think that's too punitive and there's no real chance to restore or heal there. At the same time as I think we need teachers to be uh, much more widely embodied than just, uh, you know, the, the cisgendered straight white male, right, which is what I happen to be. Um, but there's this interesting thing that, uh, even though in some ways, you know, in academic environments, calling on, you know, professors who make mistakes to be fired feels extra punitive. There's this other element, which is, and I was talking to a few friends about this, like students are starting to realize, oh, we have power in this situation, right? I'm paying ridiculous amounts of money, um, to, um, you know, study at a certain place. Uh, and that's like, I'm actually the consumer here and I can kind of demand customer service. And while that can be very, um, you know, problematic because students don't always know what we need as students and sometimes just have to submit to guidance, there's also a kind of clarity of power existing on the student's side, which I think is really um, a good step, right? So we don't have to feel disempowered, right? And teachers also can just feel like I'm here to help and I want to be valued for that. But this isn't an identity. This is a role. And I think the more, um, uh, the more transparency there is on all sides uh, and the more kind of uh, mutual consent 
that enters the space, the less harm that will be caused in the future and the, the less likely we will be to have these instances where there's sort of people discovering ways that they feel um, harmed retroactively, right? I went along with something, but I shouldn't have. And we'll more move into space where more people are empowered. And when there's a problem, it will be handled in a more restorative way uh, when it happens. Uh, and there can be real understanding and healing. Uh, wouldn't that be enlightened society? I, I, I think so. I hope so. Um, but it's okay to look for the spaces and the teachers that you connect with. Um, you know, if you, if you don't feel safe around a straight white male teacher, you know, including this one who's been, uh, mansplaining things to you for the last hour, uh, gosh, please find a place where you can study mindfulness and Dharma, uh, where you feel safe, you know? I And if you're inspired to teach because you know that you're of an embodiment that when you were a student was not respected because people didn't really have enough inclusion and empowerment in that embodiment, um, please teach. Please, please, please teach. Please um, progress. Uh, please take your power. Uh, and uh, so... This whole conversation has been sort of part of an ongoing attempt to talk about, um, you know, the student-teacher relationship in a way that's not litigating the harms that have already happened, because I think there are many, but really saying, how do we arrive at a more empowered, mutually consensual, uh, and well-boundaried, but still human and flexible and honoring of mistakes and... Um, disappointments and projective expectations. How do we get there? Because uh, I really think we can. And um, I hope you're on your way there. Uh, and if you ever want to be in touch with me, uh, please do via ethannickturn.com. Uh, but um, uh, just give me a little chance to to get back to you because, uh, you know, like all of us humans, I'm I'm sometimes very backlogged on my email. Uh, so anyway, we'll have some great guests coming up in upcoming episodes of the Road Home podcast. Really looking forward to my next episode with uh, the um, Zen teacher and author of The Shamanic Bones of Zen, uh, Zenju Earthland Manuel. Uh, that'll be our next episode. And uh, thanks so much for listening. So for the Road Home podcast, this is Ethan Nickturn. See you next time. 